Good morning. It's Friday, the 1st of March, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj broadcasting from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Can you believe it? Two months of 2024 are already gone by and we are in March. Yes, I know February is a shorter month and maybe it's all psychological. But speaking of what is not, our top stories and themes for the day. High tax collections base effect takes India's third quarter GDP to 8.4% and beats all estimates. Tata's lead 126,000 crores worth of semiconductor projects to kick off in the next 100 days. India's electronic exports to the United States as a ratio of China's triples in the last year. Are Indian companies giving up on mass market products too soon in this shift to premiumization? And why Hong Kong has had the world's worst performing major stock market in a quarter of a century? This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. The markets were seesawing. The markets were seesawing ahead of GDP numbers, which have beaten expectations of all and sundry. More on the GDP numbers themselves shortly, but the BSC Sensex swung 631 points before closing at 72,500, up 195 points. And the Nifty 50, on the other hand, ended the Feb derivative series at 21,983, up 31 points. Some more news on the more sensitive small and medium cap mutual funds who are already being asked to rejig their portfolios and keep cash handy if investors were to come charging in. Reuters is reporting that the Securities and Exchange Board of India has now asked money managers to consider restricting one-off investments from clients in small and mid-cap stock mutual funds and also cut commissions offered for their sales. This was apparently communicated to money managers in a meeting earlier this month, though the quantum of how much those restrictions would be in terms of funds is not clear. Now, there have been several noises on this score in recent days, all mostly emanating from an apparent and broader concern that smaller investors have put money into relatively or potentially volatile small cap stocks via small cap mutual funds or even mid cap mutual funds. Now, small cap stocks are defined as those with a market capitalization of less than 5,000 crore rupees, while mid cap are usually between 5,000 and 20,000 crore rupees. Reuters has computed that in the last 10 months, the assets managed by small cap funds rose almost 86% to about 240,000 crores as of end January, while mid cap funds rose 58% to around 290,000 crores. In contrast, assets with large cap funds stood at only around 299,000 crores. So it looks almost all equal, which of course is worrying. Like we mentioned yesterday as well, the Nifty Small Cap 100 Index has risen 74% in the last year. The Nifty Mid Cap is up 61%. And in contrast, the Nifty 50, which we talk about every day, has risen 26% over the same period over the last year. Now, all of this is, of course, good and nice to know, but also the kind of data, just to reiterate, would keep any market regulator on the edge of the seat. Meanwhile, the rupee, of whom or of which we've not spoken much about or actually not spoken about at all in recent days, is at about 82 rupees, 93 paise to the dollar, having edged a little higher yesterday. Meanwhile, in the United States, inflation rose in line with expectations in January, according to an important gauge the Federal Reserve uses as it deliberates cutting interest rates According to CNBC, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, excluding food and energy costs, increased 0.4% for the month, and it's 2.8% from a year ago, as expected, according to Dow Jones consensus estimates. And the moves came amid an unexpected jump in personal income, 
which rose well above the forecast and spending decreased versus the estimate for a gain, all according to CNBC. GDP beats all expectations. Now, how did The Economist get this wrong? I mean the ones in government, since arguably you could say that they have better access to data than the ones outside who could not be faulted for groping in the dark on a bright summer day. So, India's GDP or gross domestic product growth rate for the quarter ended December 31st, 2023 came in at 8.4% according to the data released by the National Statistical Office at the Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation on Thursday. Thanks to this, the full year or 23-24 estimate has been revised to 7.6% from 7%. There are lots of other revisions that have happened and we'll come to that shortly. As quarters go, the October to December quarter was the fastest pace in the last year and a half, thanks also to strong manufacturing and construction activity. That 8.4% figure is higher than what the Reserve Bank of India itself had said at 6.5%, that is. Even State Bank of India Research, whose predictions are usually quite generous, said that growth would be in the range of 67 to 6.9%. But they did not, I guess, know about the revisions, which, like I said, we will come to shortly. Other estimates include the 6.6% arrived at from a Reuters poll of economists. So what drove this? Well, the figures that we have are that construction grew at 9.5%, followed by manufacturing at 11.6%, though in both cases, the figures were a little lower than in the previous quarter. The last quarter also saw a fall in agricultural production by 0.8%. Bank of Baroda Research says Q3 was propped up mainly by the net tax effect as value added grew at 6.5% this quarter, while GDP, as we know, is at 8.4% due to exceptional tax collections and control over subsidies. According to the BOB research team, this would get corrected in Q4 and thus lead to a more modest growth for the full year as seen in the data. A big boost has come from construction, which has been supported by the numbers we just saw and is reflective of a high thrust on roads and housing. Steel and cement data for the year have been robust all through. I reached out to Vivek Kumar of Quant Eco and I began by asking him what the economists missed and also how they were interpreting this data from a wider perspective and more importantly, what their outlook was. Most optimistic on the street was at 7.4% on the, as far as Q3 GDP growth estimate is concerned. And if you compare where data has actually come, there's a one percentage point difference between the release and where the most optimist person on the street was. So clearly uh, something inexplicable was going on that has essentially come about from the fact that last few quarters of the previous financial year, as well as the year before that, has gone a revision, and the revision has been downward in case of financial year 22-23, most of the quarters. Similarly, FY 21-22, most of the quarterly numbers have seen an upward revision, because of which 22-23 has seen a downward revision, and because of which 23-24 is seeing an upward revision. So from an English perspective, last year's base got lowered, and this year's base has now artificially received that statistical boost. So this was clearly something which was not accounted for. And to be honest, Govind, it's something that economists on the streets will never be able to do because past data revision is something which even the statistical ministry doesn't know about. They can only you know, reconcile when they have actual information. And this actual information comes with a lag for an economy like India. We've got to live with these inconsistencies, you could say, idiosyncrasies of India's statistical system. 
So you're saying that the revisions that have happened, I mean, just to also sort of put an explainer question there. So why do these revisions happen? Is it because the system is collecting data that was not collected earlier or could not have been collected earlier? Two things here. One is the initial estimate which is released by the NHO is always a preliminary estimate. Even if you see the data for a financial year 23-24, while it is a full year estimate, you clearly don't have the full year GDP data. Obviously, we are still living through that 23-24 time. So what NSO does is it has some data. Let's say it has about two or three quarters of data. And basis that, it projects what is going to happen in Q4, basis a recent trend and basis some information. So that is as far as the annual numbers are concerned. Now, within this statistical exercise, there is also an element of what exactly do you capture. And most of the time when NSO captures the quarterly GDP numbers, it is based again on an incomplete set of information. Let's take, for example, the industrial landscape. Typically, the quarterly numbers are based on IFP. And when the annual data is computed, the final annual data is computed, it is computed on the basis of the actual annual survey of industry, which happens with a two to three year lag. So there will always be this discrepancy between ASI data, which is much more richer in comparison to IIP, and which is also much more definitive compared to IIP is more like a high frequency. IIP is like a pulse. So, you know, you just want to take a pulse of how things are moving, whereas the actual health check is something which is done by the ASI. Similarly, in case of services also, there are a lot of indicators, so which are preliminary in nature, and, and the NSO uses them to compute quarterly information. The annual information is based on a much richer and a wider set of Right. Okay. So that puts perspective into these numbers. So now what's the outlook, Vivek, as you look at Q4, which is the current quarter, and finally the outlook for the year ahead as things stand today? The two things here, as far as the GDP and both the GDP, because you've got to look at GDP as well and GDP as well. There's a minor difference between them. So you said GDP is gross domestic product, GVA is gross value added. Value added, yes. And the difference between them is the net indirect taxes. Indirect adjusted for subsidies is your net indirect taxes. This year, because your net indirect taxes have shown a very healthy momentum, the divergence between GDP and GBA has got amplified. Uh, just to give you a perspective, when the revisions happened this time around, the GDP number, which was in January released at 7.3% per financial year 23-24, for the full year number got revised to 7.6%. So there was a 30 basis point upward revision in the full year data. Whereas the GBA number for 23-24, which was released at 6.9% as an estimate in January, continues to remain unchanged at 6.9%. So essentially, the bump up that you are seeing in case of the data revisions is largely, you could argue, on a net basis as it is coming from the net indirect taxes. So GVA is not really altering the picture at all between January release and February. So 6.9 remains unchanged. Yes, if you have to give a GDP number, now the GDP number has to take into account the taxes or the net tax component. And you will see an upward revision in from, I guess, across the street by every multilateral body, every market analyst, including the policymakers themselves. So this is given. So there is likely to be a 30 basis for the GDP number went up by 30 basis points. You will see a 30 basis points upward revision by almost everybody on the street. Now, what does it do to the next year GDP or growth forecast? I guess the picture by and large from a next year's perspective will not change because 
this has two elements. As I said, one is the story with which you are progressing, which is that you know, next year uh, things have to show a little bit of a slowdown. Reason being, the fiscal part of the equation is tightening. Secondly, the lagged impact of monetary policy tightening has to play out. And it's not just, by the way, monetary policy tightening. RBI is also tightening from the liquidity perspective as well as on the regulatory perspective. So the, all the regulatory dispensations which were allowed post-COVID are now being taken off the table bit by bit. So it's, it's not just interest rates. So all these forms of tightening, although it is happening at a gradual pace, I guess FY24-25 will be the year where you see the maximum impact of these policy measures because typically they happen with a lag. And all said and done, there is still some element of global uncertainty, largely because of geopolitics, which continues to remain absolutely adverse at this point in time. So that expectation that things will moderate somewhat still continues to remain intact. Yes, basis the upward revision in FY24, there can be a minor tweak that market participants might want to do to their financial year 24-25. As far as we are concerned, I would attach an upside number. Earlier, we were saying GDP number for 23-24 would be at 7%. Now, it is likely to be somewhat higher. Maybe you could argue that it is likely to get closer to 7.3-7.4% as far as we are concerned. From a next year perspective, again, there can be equal magnitude of upward revision, maybe to the tune of 30 to 40 basis points again. 30 basis points, on an average, you could expect most of the market participants to revise upwards, both FI24 as well as FI24. Right. So I guess on that encouraging note, <laughs> thank you very much, Vivek, for joining me. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Gaurav. Interestingly, the growth of eight key infrastructure sectors slowed to a 15-month low of 3.6% in January on account of poor performance of sectors like refinery products, fertilizer, steel, and electricity, according to official data released on Thursday, of course, and reported by Business Standard. The growth of eight core sectors, that's coal, crude oil, natural gas, refinery products, fertilizer, steel, cement, and electricity, was 4.9% in December. It was 9.7% in January. And the previous low level of growth was seen at 0.9% in October 2022. Semiconductor projects back on launch mode with 126,000 crore outlay. The government on Thursday approved the setting up of three semiconductor plants in India, the government's Minister of Electronics and Information Technology said, adding that construction of these plants will start in the next 100 days. The first commercial semiconductor fab will be set up by Tata and Powerchip of Taiwan, whose plant will be in Tolera in Gujarat. The second will also be set up by the Tatas in Morigao in Assam and worth 27,000 crores. While the third will be set up by Mumbai-based CG Power, will set up a semiconductor unit in Sanand in Gujarat in a tie-up with Renaissance Electronics Corporation Japan and Stars Microelectronics of Thailand. The government said that the units will generate direct employment of 20,000 advanced technology jobs and about 60,000 indirect jobs. Tata Electronics will produce about 50,000 wafers per month and each wafer has 5,000 chips, so the total will be about 3 billion chips per annum. Of that 126,000 crores, 91,000 crores will go to Dholera and 7,600 to Sanand both in Gujarat and 27,000 crores in Assam. These factories will be in addition to the 22,000 crore plant announced by US-based Micron in Sanand again last year. India gaining on China dominance in electronics. 
Speaking of semiconductors and all things electronics, a new study reported by Bloomberg says India is chipping away at China's dominance in electronics exports in key markets as manufacturers diversify supply chains to other parts of Asia, according to a new study. The impact is most pronounced in the United Kingdom and the United States, where geopolitical tensions with China have increased in recent years. So here are the numbers. India's electronics exports to the United States as a ratio of China's has increased to 7.6% in November last year from 2.5% in November 2021, according to London-based Fathom Financial Consulting. For the United Kingdom, the share rose to 10% from about 4.8%. So India, as we all know, has been steadily bumping up production as more and more electronics manufacturers like Taiwan's Foxconn ramp up capacity in India, including in areas like iPhones. Samsung's biggest mobile phone factory is in India, while Apple makes at least 7% of all its iPhones in India via Foxconn and Pegatron Corp. However, India's progress in gaining market share has been more limited in Europe and Japan, suggesting that a move towards dual supply chains, which is China plus one, rather than a complete abandonment of China-based production, at least for now, the London-based Fathom Consulting has said. And more on China and Hong Kong, more specifically, shortly. Are Indian companies giving up on mass markets too soon? The latest household consumption expenditure survey out last weekend after a gap of some 12 years has triggered off a series of discussions, debates, columns and of course conversations right here on The Core Report. Rama Bijapurkar, consultant on all things consumer markets and directors on boards of leading companies, says India's consumption pattern is confusing if you search for a singular thread instead of embracing multiple narratives in a column in Business Standard newspaper. She says there are three discourses about our consumption story that are running Parallelly, at the same time, in business and media, one revolves around Lamborghinis selling like hotcakes and long waiting lists for high-end SUVs, thus demonstrating that people have so much money. The second is around disappointing quarterly results, showing the K-shaped divide in consumption, the evaporating mass market and rural market consumption, and how premiumization is the new success strategy. The third discourse is around data from the new Household Consumption Expenditure Survey, which some say shows exaggerated improvement in the past 10 years, while others are appalled by how small the numbers are, she says. So, while there may be good reason for consumption being constrained right now, she feels that companies saying that let's premiumize and ignore the enfeebled mass are seeking short-sighted safety. When mass markets start growing again, will they have irrevocably conceded space to the ever-improving band of small local players? So I spoke with Rama Bijapurkar and I began by asking her how she was reading the consumption survey and also the facts that incomes had increased sharply over a longer period. So firstly, I'm surprised that people are surprised that, and I've read this a lot, that consumption expenditure has gone up. I mean, if you're ready to accept that GDP has gone up, if you're ready to accept that private final consumption expenditure is 58% of GDP and has been systematically over a period of time between 55 and 60%, then why would consumption not happen? Secondly, we know that over half of India's GDP income expenditure is in rural India, right? So obviously rural is growing and urban is growing. Sometimes one is up, sometimes one is down. Depends if you have bumper crops and election years and mining doing well and everything else. And you will have a takeoff and rural will grow faster than urban. So we've seen that over time. It is our lived experience. In fact, uh, I did a quick calculation yesterday. 
that if you look at the consumption per capita consumption expenditure that they are providing and you gross it up, you are taking the averages and multiplying by for a family and multiplying by every month and so on. You are actually coming to a number which is well short of the private final consumption expenditure number, which is normal with surveys, but it's like off by, you know, it's almost half. Uh, that's, that's the way it is. So as far as the increase in consumption is concerned, I have no issues with it. The fact that the increase is in rural as well as urban, I have no issues with it. Because in my living memory of the last 12 years, something's been up, something's been down at any point in time. So I'm okay with that. Right. So that's the growth part. So no, my question is also the other way around. So is that showing sufficient, let's say, expansion in incomes or purchasing power and so on? It is because if your net national... Yeah, if your net national income is growing and your personal disposable income, which is net national income, net of taxes is growing, if you accept those numbers, then obviously the, you know, the, the growth is the growth, right? And if you look at our GDP numbers now, if we're saying that starting from there, everything is not valid, then that's different. But my surprise is that if you accept those numbers, then why would you not accept these numbers? Survey data will explain a certain proportion of the total and as far as uh, the total goes. But I think the increase is fine. And I'm not particularly uh, hot on longitudinal data because, I mean, I know it is of interest to economists and policymakers and so on and so forth. But if you want longitudinal data, then you can't just have two points and then start comparing methodologies. We should have been bringing it out every two years or something like that. And then we would have seen patterns. Correct. Yeah. And we've not seen this for uh, more than 12 years. So the other shift is the rise in discretionary expenditure. You know, people spending more on other things, expenditure on food going down. Now, of course, it seems logical again that this would happen as incomes go up. But is there anything else that you're seeing in that? That did surprise me a lot, the steep drop. And I need to see it by expenditure class because I have a feeling that also maybe because, see, normally I think a lot of studies and this is my best hypothesis. I don't claim any particular statistical smarts on this. But I think that in the past, the focus of a lot of NSS has also been at the lower end of the pyramid. There's a lower end, what's happening at the lower end, and it's been used in order to decide subsidies and in order to do you know, poverty line discussions and so on. And this time, as they have also shown, they have taken trouble to sample the higher end as well. So I have a feeling that when we're looking at the comparisons, we are probably comparing something that may have been more accurate at the lower end, less accurate at the higher end by design with something that is a little more balanced. And so that's really why you're getting the variations. The second thing is that I'm not sure where the amount of food that we are eating outside the home is actually going, right? So the cereal dropping is quite stark and I can see that. I can see that because the bottom 20% is really the welfare state as well it should be. But other than that, I think there is more awareness of health, there is more awareness of immunity, there's more awareness of healthy eating. So I think everybody is trying, so I'm not surprised with that. But I don't know where, for example, would you count all the money that we're spending on eating out and the growths we've seen in packaged foods. I mean, it's not coming in food from what I can see from there, so it's coming somewhere else. So maybe there's a way to relook at the food, because if you talk to any food marketer, they tell you that out-of-home consumption is outpacing in-home consumption. And the higher spenders, which is the higher income, also have had more going to getting from outside than from making it home. In fact, someone asked me the other day, is the Indian kitchen dead? And I thought that's a horrifying thought. 
So yeah, I feel the numbers that they've come down is okay, but that they've come down so dramatically in the lower end of it also seem in, in rural also seems to surprise me. And I would want to look at it by consumption class to be able to see it. So if you were the marketer, um, you know, consumer product company, particularly either trying to figure out what to do with the existing portfolio or let's say create something new, what does this level of household consumption expenditure data tell you and what's missing? Right now, it tells me two things. One, which is my favorite hobby horse again, that look, these numbers are broadly right. Double them if you want to double them because, uh, you know, so you're saying I'll take the percentage distribution on the survey and multiply it by private final consumption expenditure. But no matter which way you skin this cat, boss, this is what it is. Okay, I want people to get that, right? The second is the overlapping incomes between rural and urban. And I think that that is showing you that you have a similar mass market coming. And if you do that, there are very interesting patterns. If you list all the income on one side and if you look at how much rural, how much urban in each lot, you will find that at the top end, there is almost as much rural as there is urban. You will find that there's a very small urban outlier and a large rural outlier at the bottom. So you have to ask yourself, am I only targeting the, take my entire sales, look at who's buying and say, which parts of these am I targeting and how low down have I come on the spectrum, given my understanding of my consumer base? And I think chances are that that will show you why your rural sales have been going up and uh, where you've actually banged from. But I think the emergence of mass markets to me is the most interesting because for the first time you have large markets which are very similar in nature. So we'll applaud China for, you know, dumping into our markets but being able to produce things really cheap. Maybe that's our chance now. Large factories that produce things really cheap for what these mass markets are. It's also called DMART. It's also called a lot of other stuff. But maybe we actually need to get that act going. That's what it's telling me. Right. Rama, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. The story of Hong Kong. Well-known author Stephen Roach and former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia writes in the Financial Times about how he was energized by his first trip to Hong Kong in the 1980s. Well, I went to Hong Kong too for the first time in the late 1990s and I felt similarly. Speaking for myself, there is a certain oriental mystique coupled with raw and infectious energy that seems to flow on the streets of Hong Kong, the old and new islands, or at least used to, argues Stephen Roach. The now faculty member at Yale and author of Accidental Conflict, America, China and the Clash of False Narratives says while it pained him to admit it, Hong Kong is now over. One reason, Stephen Roth says, is that Hong Kong has had the world's worst performing major stock market over the past quarter of a century. Since the handover to China in 1997, the Hang Seng Index has been basically flat, up only about 5%. Over that same period, the S&P 500 has surged more than four times or fourfold. Even mainland China's underperforming Shanghai Composite so far has outdistanced the Hong Kong exchange. Roach says Hong Kong's demise is driven, among other reasons, by the confluence of three factors. First, domestic politics, where a 50-year transition to full takeover by the People's Republic of China had been effectively cut in half. In the spring of 2019, at the onset of the democracy protests, the Hang Seng Index was trading at nearly 30,000. It's now more than 45% below that level at 15,750. Next. The China factor. The Hong Kong stock market has long been considered as a levered play on mainland China. And for a variety of reasons, as we all know and speak about almost every other day, the Chinese economy has hit a wall. 
These forces have sparked a three-year bear market that's taken China's broad CSI 300 index more than 40% down from its spring 2021 peak. And finally, since 2018, the US-China rivalry has gone from bad to worse. Hong Kong has been trapped in that crossfire. Roach says that in the 1980s, Hong Kongers had both a vision and a strategy. China was just beginning to stir and Hong Kong was perfectly positioned as the major beneficiary of what turned into the world's greatest development miracle. It all worked out brilliantly for longer than anyone expected. And now, says Stephen Roach, it's over. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopsis or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>